0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com.
0: This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had.
1: Ah! Uh, what is that?
0: Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's going to save your soul. The devil runs his groove.
2: Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Southern Teague and I'm Greg Benson. Greg, how are you, my friend? I'm sweaty. How are you doing, man? Yeah, it's a hot one. Brooklyn baby. <laughs> summer is summer is upon us in a flash, right? We the gears shift so hard between seasons in this
1: town. I kind of love it though, man. I mean, like I I love New York summer. I love that kind of like, you know, I love uh escaping down to the beach, you know, once every couple of you know, months. It's I, I love how, like, at the end of summer in September, everyone's, like, always trying to cram in their beach days that they thought they were going to get. Mm-hmm. I love uh, the heat. I love the, you know, the ice cream trucks everywhere. I don't know, man. I'm just a sucker for New York City summer. It makes me happy. It's like that and Christmas are the two things that just, like, I enjoy despite all the cheesiness, despite some of the uncomfortable elements to it. I just think they're fun, you know? Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm digging it, too. You know, my new apartment has a backyard, so... I'm um, getting to spend a bunch of time out there. I get up in the mornings and that's where I go sort of catch up on social media, emails, et cetera. Um And then my new apartment also has, uh, you know, a subterranean floor. I have half of my apartment's above the ground and half of it's below. And down here where I'm at right now in the studio, it's quite cool and nice. Um but speaking oh, so you've of. Got, it, you've, got a, you've got a little cave that you can escape to. Yeah, kind of, right? It's, it's definitely. Uh, it's, it, it's got windows, you know, like uh, Laverne and Shirley style, like garden windows. <laughs> um, you know, they're up above, like at the high part of the wall. But it's nice and cool down here, like noticeably, like a, a solid 20 degree difference between upstairs and downstairs at any given time. Um, but speaking of shipping away to the beach, sneaking away to the beach, uh, Damon's not here with us today because he and Dylan, his twin brother, Are celebrating what they call Twinsmas, which is their birthday, which was yesterday um, in Hawaii. Creepy. Yeah, (laughs) it is kind of creepy. (laughs) I don't, I don't not look forward to the photos, (laughs) but I don't really look forward to the photos.
1: It's not, just, it's not just the fact that they have the same face. It's that they have the exact same aesthetic. Like, you kind of have to look at the tattoos to tell which one is which. Oh, 100%. And that's the weird part. <laughs> 100%. They have the same hair, the same beard, obviously the same face, same
2: build. Uh, and then, the, yeah, they dress the same. Um, and I think that the, inter- the most interesting part about that to me, and I've certainly probably talked about it at, at too much length on the show with Damon, is that it all kind of happened separately. Uh, they currently live in the same city, but... But for, you know, nearly a decade, they didn't. Um, And, you know, if if you look back on the Speakeasy's uh, Instagram page, you can see that photo of 10 years of Damon, where he was a clean cut, you know, handsome fellow uh, before he became a long haired hippie fellow Um, from from Buddy Holly to Willie Nelson in a flash. Yeah. Yeah. But that's crazy is that, that Dylan did the same sort of transformation <laughs> on the other side of the country. So, you know, they're both wearing giant turquoise rings and cowboy hats and sporting big, long beards and braided hair. You know, it's it's like, how does that? But that's the mystery of twins. That's the
1: creepiness of twins. Nature and nurture, man. I mean, yes, uh... I don't know. I'm, I'm like about as skeptical as they come, but my grandma, uh, was a twin for a very, very long time. And like, and then she wasn't, well, I mean, my, my, <laughs> my, gra- my grandma is 94. I guess she is still a twin. It's just the, she, she outlasted her brother. Oh, um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was super weird how they could like tune into each other's thoughts. Like I don't, again, I don't really believe in anything that you can't see or prove. Don't mistake that for saying that we know everything. Clearly we don't, but you know, it's like, I I am very skeptical about anybody that claims to have like psychic powers or, you know, uh, astrology or anything like that. And yet there's just so much undeniable evidence that I've seen with my own eyes of her and her brother, just kind of knowing what the other one is up to without having to actually communicate in any sort of discernible way. It's very, it's very weird it was very weird and continues to be really weird when I tell the stories. Like I would hang out in your kitchen and she'd be saying, Oh, you know, I think I should call Don. And five minutes later, the phone would ring and Don was like, Hey, I feel like, you know, you, you wanted to call. So here I am. Now that's, <laughs> now that's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. It is.
2: Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and many times when I would be hanging out with, with Damon and Dylan would show up in this, in nearly an identical get up you know like that's the that's where it gets it just starts getting weird
1: uh we'll never we'll never know man as non-twins i guess we'll never get it we'll just have to well, be you know yeah
2: i got no siblings at all i don't know about you um but i know that our guest has siblings so let's bring them into the virtual studio. yes absolutely how was that for a segue <laughs> a-,
1: bumpy, a plus bumpy, bumpy at wow. best We miss those. We miss. We miss you, Damon. We miss those segues and uh, and happy birthday, bud. Glad you're. Glad you're getting some much needed R and R out there.
2: Happy birthday, Damon. Miss you a ton. Realizing uh, realizing yesterday, by the way, that I haven't seen Damon face to face since February of last year. So it's really
1: nuts, man. Anyway, yeah. In the in the studio with us today, we have uh, distiller and vegan meat pioneer and uh, proud brother Louis Catazone of Saint Agrestis. Louis, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you so much for joining us. My mom, mom. Thanks, for, thanks for
2: giving up some of your time today to hang out with us in the in the virtual studio. Soon, I hope. We're going to get
1: back to the real studio. I don't know. Oh, I can't wait. Right, right when it's going to be nice and hot, too. That's what I was thinking today. It's like, I can't wait to get back inside of a metal shipping container. That's going to
3: rule. Ironically, right after this, I have to go to Roberta's anyway. So it would have been perfect
1: if we were there. <laughs> <laughs> my my sympathy is that you have to go to Roberta's. Oh, it's it's yeah, it's exactly. my
3: it's truly my pleasure. But it is uh, it is business. But I'm excited to get, to go to Roberta's as always. <laughs> we we all we all have
1: these crosses to bear. I guess. Well, and so, that's the
2: thing too. I think uh, you know we're in the business of pleasure, so you know surely you're going over there to show your wares and you'll be able to enjoy their wares while you're there. And that's, 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 that's a huge draw to this field of endeavor, I think, for a lot of us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And they uh, they they serve my wares and I'm thankful and grateful for that. But it's hard to go there without leaving overstuffed. And luckily for Amaro, we have a solution to that, that sensation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so you've been doing St. Agrestis right here in Greenpoint, Brooklyn uh for how long now since summer of 2017 so really coming up on four years now
2: man pretty amazing And what made you say to yourself you know what i need to get into making a morrow
3: <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know uh if you know this other from past conversations but my dad is from italy now he's from down in calabria and my mom's actually from greenpoint not too far from your previous apartment Souther. Uh, mm-hmm. but we uh amara was kind of in the background of my life it was during our stereotypical sunday dinners it was which of course in an italian american household happens at 2 p.m. and uh after dinner ends up lasting from about 3 30 p.m. through the rest of the night but we always had Amaro on the table during that after dinner portion of of the meal which was most of the day and um an Amaro called Amaro Solano which I'm sure you've heard of Mm because you know you know Amaro uh was like kind of in the background of all those childhood memories but not until I got into the wine and spirits industry and started to see the trend happening, did I think that I would ever have any professional dealings with this spirit that, you know, while everyone was stealing vodka from their parents' liquor cabinets, I was stealing Amaro Solano and trying to (laughs) share it with people which which was not a successful uh, experience for most of them, (laughs) none of them even. But yeah, that's, uh, eh, that's kind of, you know, the, I grew up with Amaro, but I didn't necessarily expect to get into it. And then it kind of fell, it fell into my lap to some degree.
1: Wow. I mean, I, I, it's just so amazing that Amaro would fall into anyone's lap. And and it's such a, an opportune time, because I think, you know, the, that that's when I think of Amaro as really moving from being a very niche product to being something that at least... You know, people, if they, even if they didn't, you know, run an Amaro themed bar, for example, at least I feel like there was a trend where most folks that you would talk to on the street would at least know what it was, would know that it was this sort of Italian bitter aperitif sort of thing.
2: I mean, I'm totally on board with that line of thinking, Greg, but I still think it's incorrect. I think that's an insular uh, angle. You know, I think we think that now most people know what Amaro is, but we're thinking that inside of our tiny bubble of, of who who pays attention to the cocktail world, um, I think still at large, it's it's an untapped uh, vein, and I, you know I, which I think you know uh, means there's plenty of opportunity for growth.
3: That's definitely true. And my experience, traveling across the country, kind of pouring amaro for folks in different cities, I've probably done I don't know 1,500 hours of in-store tastings where I post up in a liquor store and whoever walks in unconditioned, no idea what they're expecting, gets to have me offer them a pour of St. Agrestis Amaro. And even four years ago in Brooklyn, uh, a lot less people knew what St. Agrestis was. Um, Nowadays, it's a lot higher of a proportion and it's because I've been pouring, it's because you've been pouring. Um, mm-hmm. Folks get these experiences with Amaro, but I've poured plenty of people and totally unsuspecting when they walked into the liquor store their first serving of Amaro, which has come with some grimaces, as I'm sure you've seen in your day too. Uh, the main difference being that when someone walked into Amore Margo, for example, they, they would know that they were getting into Amaro more likely than not. I guess that's not a 100%, but it's certainly a it certainly was the general majority of people would would be expecting amaro versus the person who came in for a bottle of Tito's and ended up getting served some bitter
2: aperitivo <laughs> right um yeah sure there's there's uh, you know the expectation of the place you're walking into uh, but when you're walking into any old liquor store which generally has a a, broad, a you know broad spread of items on offer um you may yeah as you said be going in there just to pick up a bottle of i don't know Malibu coconut rum, uh, and then you got this guy trying to shove this dark, brooding, uh, bittersweet thing down, down your throat. Um, what do you... Th- what, what would you say the reaction is to... Well, first of all, I would say what percentage of people said, no, thank you, right? Just off the bat, not going to do it um, when you told them what it was. And then of the people who were hesitant but did it anyway, what, what like what was the reaction, positive or negative?
3: So I guess my results in this were kind of skewed in for a few reasons number one would be going back to that bubble that you spoke of we we do generally live in a really really cool area where even mm. people who might not be as involved in the industry as we are are still informed and curious which is that's why the key. curiosity weird, for sure and weird products like amaro can become popular and mainstay items on someone's bar cart, thanks to the curiosity of, um, of of people in general. But here in Brooklyn, people like to try things. And and that goes for Manhattan as well, of course. Uh, neighborhood specific to some degree, I'd say, but that, that can be mm-hmm. said about Brooklyn too. Uh, but the other thing that I had working to my advantage is that I make the Amaro. So when I'd say, hey, I make this Amaro in Greenpoint and people would say, oh, you make it? There's usually a little bit more of a a curiosity, again, to try it because they're actually standing in front of the person who who produced it.
2: Uh, They feel a little less uh, emboldened to just say no to to you because you you made the thing. Yeah, exactly. Easier to say no to the kid who's just
3: like, try this Amaro. (laughs) Yeah, one hundred percent. So I work I, for these guys. Yeah, yeah. I, I I have had many situations where they're like, "Well, if I don't like it before I taste it, you're not going to be offended, are you?" And I said, "No, of course not. I just want you to try it. That way, you know, maybe your third or fourth experience with Amaro might this is going to just help you get to a place where you can actually stomach it and you're if you find it palatable, because I think it does take a couple of tries with something as unique and also. You know, herbal as Amaro. It's just not familiar for us as Americans. But most folks. Or as
2: as a species, though. That's the thing I try and impress upon people all the time uh, when they're coming in, you know, uh, fresh to to Amori Margo, um, you know, that we only taste the five things sweet, sour, salty, umami, and bitter. And only one of those five is an acquired taste, and that's bitter. You have to taste it several times before you're adjusted to it. You know, the joke that I commonly use is. If kids ran the world, we wouldn't have broccoli. Too bitter for them, right? Um, but over time, you try the broccoli, and you're like, "Ew, girl, let's get this away." Then, as you grow up and mature, you try it again, and you try it again, and you're like, "Oh, you know what? I do like this." Um, so I feel like you're you're an extra hard road to hoe if you're out there just handing people something that A didn't expect to get anything, right? They just went to the store; they didn't know they were going to get a sample of something, uh, much less than tomorrow. But so A, you're handing them anything, and B, you're handing them something that's Kind of got a built-in system that says you're not going to buy it on this
1: one try. You're going to have to come try it a few times. <laughs> well, see, I I, I actually kind of have to push back on you a little bit like that because I did a little uh, reading on the the science of bitterness uh, for an episode of Backbar that's actually going to be coming out uh, next week on the 15th. Nice plug. Nice plug. I know, right? <laughs> uh, and you know, it, it's it's interesting because, like you said, it is it's the only taste that. Um, is biologically programmed in our brains to make it to, to tell us not to eat something. You know, every every other taste that you just mentioned, like you know, salt uh, tells us about the presence of electrolytes. Sour can clue us into vitamins. Umami tells us about protein. Uh, sweet tells us about sugar. Bitter tells us that what we're eating might be poisonous. Right. But there is research to suggest that that might not actually be true, and our bodies actually have bitter receptors kind of all over in in weird places that you wouldn't think that bitter receptors would be. They're on our skin, they're in our lungs. Hilariously, they're even in our testicles. And it sort of makes you realize that like bitterness is this sense that we don't understand. And when I think about, you know, drinking black coffee or drinking a shot of Underberg, I don't think of it as a unpleasant experience. I think about it as something that makes me sort of sit up and like pause and take a moment and go back. And the science isn't so much that it's a knee jerk reaction. Ew, I don't like this, at least as adults, it's a reaction of what the hell is that? This bears more investigation. Yeah, I, I want more and I want to try it more. Yeah, I can totally
2: see and understand that. I think, I think there's something to be said in there somewhere though about experience. Um, You know, uh, which I think would lead back to what I was saying, sort of the acquiring of that taste. Um, that's true. But We again, but again, I mean, experience bitter as a, as a youth, and we are immediately sort of turned off by it. And I think that's at the biological programming of this could be dangerous to myself as a, as a one person, but also it could be dangerous to the species as a whole. Um, but then literally just by living, whether you ever touch another bitter thing at all, you gain more experience of how things react to your personal
1: body. So you might be more interested in trying something again, you know? Yeah, and I think, and I think that that's interesting to use that word, sort of experience, um, because it's the only flavor, it's the flavor that I can think of the most that, like, you know, I, I, it, it hits something in the front human part of my brain, and I have to actually experience that flavor more so than you know, a thing of ice cream, which I also enjoy. But I mean, Louis, you know, you're, you've actually, you have. Uh, field data that you can shed a light on here in this discussion. Like when you were passing out these, these samples to people, what were their reactions? What did they, what did they say? What kind of feedback did you get from, you know, the man or the woman on the street? Well, there's,
3: first of all, I just kind of want to take a step back and acknowledge that there are bitter receptors on testicles. That's yes, in and of yes. itself. In the heart but,
2: too. There, there's some in the heart as well. You can yeah, have a bitter heart.
3: Yeah, for sure, but you know, the, I kind of have to almost think more like Southern as far as if there's uh, if there's bitter receptors on your testicles, then yeah, you're taught to like kind of avoid them, right? That's kind of that's my association at least. Uh, but I'll, I'll I'll move on to your question. Yeah, the I think that that in a lot of cases, there's been instances where if it was someone's first experience with a marum, they definitely didn't buy it. Uh, but if if someone had just gone to a Amargo or had a meal at some uh, a restaurant that had an Amaro program and was served some Amaro after a meal, whether it be uh, an Amaro made here in the U.S. or a big brand Amaro produced in the motherland or in Europe in general, that person was way more likely to enjoy the, their experience with Saint Agreste Amaro. Now, I think it all. That would make sense with any spirit. It's not specific to Amaro. If someone had Jamaican rum for the first time, they'd say, why is this so funky? What is that smell? What's the deal with this? Uh, mm-hmm. But when you have it the second time, you're expecting it and you kind of, you know, you, your, your taste buds to some degree are a little bit prepared for it, assuming that your memory doesn't suck, which, you know, for some of us, our memories do suck. I think that experience and memory is really what makes the actual enjoyment and in a lot of cases, the associations with any spirit, whether it's Amaro or tequila, uh, enjoyable. That's yeah. interesting.
2: Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, that's kind of my train of thought as well. And, and everything that I've kind of come to believe in my experience with this stuff it sort of points that way. I want to ask though, well, I also want to re- remind, remind the, the listener, you know, Amaro, the, and this is the problem with translation, right? The, the word itself translates to mean bitter, but the thing, the liquid that we're talking about translates to mean bitter, sweet liqueur, right? And I think it's really important that, that we say the sweet part because Amaro, the only difference really between an Amaro and a tincture bitter is some kind of sweetener to make it more potable, more drinkable, um, you know, giving it balance, difficult to have a glass of Peychaud's bitters before lunch but very easy to have a glass of Campari before lunch, right? Because of that, that the balance of, of making it potable by having a sweetener added. So I don't like to scare people off by saying, this is bitter, it's just bitter, the word means bitter, uh, which I think, sadly, is how the public shares that information with one another. And I think the ones who are enthusiasts inadvertently scare off the ones who might have been. Um, you know, I've talked all the time about how Maybe two people will come in, and one's like an Amaro nerd, and he's read about the bar for years, and he's so excited to be there with his friend, and he looks up and sees something like Nova Salis, and he's like, "Oh my god, give us two Nova Salis!" And I am like, "Your friend here has never had Amaro. Why give him that? He's never going to have it again, you know." So I, I'll give you this, but I want to talk to your friend and, and coach him in a little bit, you know. Um, So uh, I think it's important to mention uh, or to remind, anyway, that the sweetness is part of the the program when we talk about Amaro. Um, and then I want to talk about just specifically your Amaro. San
3: Agrestes, you want to talk to us about the flavor profile? I have my own words about it, but I don't want to taint yours. Sure. Well, and I think sweetness in addition to obviously flavors that aren't just bitter. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and that's what makes the possibility of an Amore Amargo real because you can go there and experience hundreds of visits and you can continue to pull out a different bottle for that same person who's been to your bar hundreds of times and the experience will be unique every single time because Amaro has such a wide spectrum um, of bitter and sweet, but also of just different flavor profiles based off of the herbs, spices, flowers, roots, seeds, citrus that go into it. Now Saint Crest is, is quite unique in that it's, it, it's pretty spice driven in and of itself. And that's probably the first and most um, easily recognizable things. And I think you can make an amaro approachable in two different ways. One way being by making it sweeter, and another by making it familiar. And with Saint Agrestus Amaro, we we opted for complex and nuanced, but familiar, and and not and balanced in bitter and sweet. That was the goal. So Saint Agrestus Amaro has cinnamon, clove, and allspice first. Uh, that kind of gets balanced out with a high tone green note of the spearmint and peppermint that gives that that cooling sensation and then the um the finish you get that sarsaparilla root which is quintessentially american and i always call it the snapping botanical because when i'm pouring it for somebody and they recognize that flavor because it's so nostalgic (laughs) but they can't figure out exactly where they recognize it from because perhaps it's been 20 40, 60 years since the person I'm pouring it for had a root beer, uh, but they know that they remember this flavor and it's usually kind of transportive, which is super fun as well.
2: Yeah, I am a big uh, a fan of your, your juice. It's uh, It definitely has that sarsaparilla vibe. Um, I, I like to, as with many, many Amaro, I like to just drink it long with some seltzer and it does kind of mimic somewhat like a, a, a minted, um, you know root beer situation um totally so it makes it uh, pretty easy to grab off the shelf and take on its own or it's got lots of possibilities in the cocktail world um let's take a break real quick and hear from our sponsors we're going to come back and keep talking about uh, locally made saint this tomorrow uh, with louis uh, so stand by <laughs>
1: Other, it's hot. It's hot in Brooklyn. Oh, man, Finally, uh,
2: crazy hot. <laughs> I love it, as you know. Uh, I, I, I think I always talk about how, you know, for me, surface of the sun is is, is the temperature I want it to be all the time. Um, so me I'm,
1: too, man. I'm I'm a lizard. I love just like basking out in this heat. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, I love uh, and it. And I know, and people are out drinking cocktails again, which is fantastic. Yeah, cocktails man. to go are still here thank goodness. Like people are out on the street. Like, you know, I can walk to my favorite spot and grab a frozen drink to go. It's, it's, it's quite nice. Uh, New York's back, baby. Yeah, man. Turn up the heat, turn up the thirst.
2: I think uh, people are out there really going for it. (laughs) Two reasons. One, it is hot. And two, I think also, uh, you know, they didn't get to do this last year. So I'm noticing, uh, here and there, I know, I know you're not kind of in it right now, but I am, I'm noticing here and there that people are, uh maybe going a little too far from time to time more more often than they would normally i think it's the newness of it being back so i think it's uh important that we take care and uh monitor them in a in a more caring way be a little bit more responsible about the way Absolutely. about the way we and serve I, and,
1: and you know we've been we've joked about this about how uh low and no ABV cocktails are always like oh like this is going to be their year but you know i think especially you know uh, this year, if you're gonna go out and you wanna drink six cocktails, why not have six low ABV cocktails? If you wanna just like have like, you know, a day where you just go out and you ride a nice buzz and you can still be responsible you can still get up for work the next day or what have you, like, no and low ABV cocktails are a viable alternative. They're out there. They're good now. They don't suck anymore. That's right. They're uh, sessionable.
2: And there's plenty of resources out there to get some information on how to go about creating those cocktails uh, f- yeah. from like Diageo
1: Bar Academy. Yeah, exactly. Diageobaracademy.com, man. Lots of really great uh, resources there, not only about making low and no ABV serves, but also just kind of like, you know, responsible bartending and mindful drinking and watching out here at health, which I really appreciate. You know, we talk about that a lot on the show, but there's a reason for that. They're important topics. Well, right. We have to be
2: mindful of the fact that we are, you know, altering people's state when we when we hand them a drink, uh, and then if we hand them another one and another one and another one, we're getting them out there. And maybe we have to be a little bit more mindful of their judgment, uh, you know. So to be able to offer things that are lower ABV, like you said, a little bit sessionable, I think people are smart enough to choose, you know, sessionable beers. But I don't think that people calculate ABV in their minds when they're looking at a menu. This sounds good. I'm going to have it. Uh, over, oh, maybe that one's a little too stiff. Maybe I should go with this one next. So I think it's a uh, part of uh, part of the program that we should drive people towards the drink that's right for them at the right time. Uh, and again, plenty of resources available at Diageo Academy, uh, which is, you know, we've been talking about it for a few weeks. It's such a great thing to have, uh, and the fact that it's free lowers the entry. Um, barrier uh, to, to next to nothing. If you've got access to the Internet, you've got this thing. And it's a it's a wide resource that has tons of uh, uh, things on it that you can look into. We've been talking about batched and batching cocktails and cocktails for delivery. Uh, we've been talking about, uh, you know, just a canon of recipes from classics to unique ones and seasonal ones. We've been talking about... Um, you know the the fact that they have a sort of master class situation happening on there with uh, different uh, professionals from all over the world swooping in to 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 talk about pr- particular topics and again that it's all free it's just incredible
1: absolutely man it's it, there's there's so much to do there and uh, you know as we keep harping on there's it costs you nothing there's no reason not to check it out so check out DiageoBarAcademy.com for tons of great resources that's D-I-A-G-E-O Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career and just learn some fun stuff. Check it out. And we are back. You were listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Today we're talking with Louis Catazon of St. Agrestus. We're having a very uh, bitter conversation here about the Amaro that he makes. And uh, we got to we got through sort of the uh, you know the, the genesis of the idea. We talked a little bit about the flavor profile. Now I want to talk about uh, this this box with the plastic bladder of uh, pre-batched cocktail that I'm seeing in every liquor store. All of a sudden, how's how's that working out? And is that how does that loop into sort of a larger RTD program that you're kind of branching out into with your tomorrow?
3: So. The ready-to-drink cocktail world was not what I expected I was diving into when we launched the Negroni in the single-serve bottles, in a in a custom single-serve bottle back in 2018, May of 2018. It's, uh, wow, to the day, uh, th- uh, three years and one month old since we got into ready-to-drink Negronis. Uh, but we also, I think to what you were mentioning, we also launched a ready-to-drink Negroni, the same exact Negroni, but instead of in a in a bottle. We launched it in a bag and box last summer, basically as a pivot during the pandemic because of how folks were drinking at home. We felt like it was an idea that I had years ago, but it was something that didn't necessarily feel like the timing was ever perfect for who needs 20 Negronis in a box. I felt like maybe the industry does, maybe some Negroni enthusiasts <laughs> do. But then I when mean, the-
2: I mean, you know, because of to-go cocktail sales being allowed and my bar having no perishable items, we sell all of our cocktails, uh, to-go cocktails in a 100 milliliter, a 250, sorry, a 200 milliliter, a 500 milliliter and a full liter. And, you know, in the beginning anyway, I think it's gotten a little less difficult because people have sort of wised up. People would come in and say, what, 10, 10, let's say Negronis, 10 Negronis, what am I going to do with 10 Negronis? And my answer would be yeah, I went to the grocery store and I only wanted one egg, but they sell them by the dozen, <laughs> and I can eat them at my leisure. I don't have to eat them all at once. Like it was really hard for me to kind of convince people. Like you don't have to drink ten at once. It's shelf stable. Relax. Um, even better you, than you eggs. Can. It's, it's, not it's even better than point. eggs. It, it's not going to go bad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, do, do you did you see that as a hurdle at all when you came? Because it has thirty in a box, right?
3: Twenty Negronis in the box. Twenty, 20 yeah. in the box. Yeah, right. 20, 20 Negronis. There's uh, sixty ounces, so it's it's twenty three ounce serves. Yeah, um, yeah. Of course, people, folks were weren't sure that they needed it. The price point was a little confusing at first because you're looking at a ready to drink cocktail that costs sixty bucks. So, but then when folks did the math and said, "Oh wow," but that's three dollars a Negroni. That's kind of a game changer when you think of it like that. Um, but we we absolutely. Right.
2: And these are the same, uh, you know, not to like bash the, the consumer though. I kind of do a lot lately, especially this past year. These are the same guys <laughs> who would be like, Oh, I'm down at their Costco grabbing a, you know, a thing of a thousand chicken tenders, you yeah. know, and you're like, yeah. you don't think you don't think you're going to drink 20 Negronis in the next, I don't know, three
3: weeks. Yeah. And the best part about the bag in box is that it truly, there's no oxygen contact or very minimal oxygen contact. The way sure, it, as you
2: drain it, the bag collapses. No air
3: goes in. Exactly. So the the Negronian bag and box virtually will never expire. I mean, it's, it's 24% alcohol or 48 proof, but it could lose some freshness due to oxidation, slight oxidation in a bag and box format over the course of four months. But you have three plus months to drink 20 Negronis and- when I tell people that it'll never go bad, they're like, so I could drink it over a year. I'm like, but why do you need to? Uh, yeah. But-, but, you know, that just makes the consumer feel safe, you know? Yeah, exactly. and that's what they- That part I kind of
2: understand. But again, the same thing with, with like you're buying a thousand chicken tenders, you know, you're just going to keep them in your freezer basically forever, you know?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's it. It's a similar concept and, and luckily based off of our timing, and there was a reason we did it when we did it, folks were just drinking so much at so much at home that it made sense for them to have a Negroni fountain in the refrigerator during the summer of twenty twenty when things got as mm-hmm. weird as they did. And, you know, to some degree still remain that weird, but I don't think the concept of having a Negroni on tap in your fridge is something that we've outgrown even as we get back to hopefully full fledged normals you know, immediately.
2: Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's going away. I think we've, we, it gave us time to train people. It gave us time to make them understand that this is a thing that they could have. And and also to prove to them that you don't have to up your normal consumption to do this. Like, I think, uh, I think maybe certainly at first when people were like, oh, I can't go to bars, I'm going to stay at home. And I would see the Instagram photos of people making themselves a drink and, you know, basically a pint glass. Uh, (laughs) I think that's just a common mistake with the home bartender. They don't portion control is not uh, very well adhered to, Um, you know, so that 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 20 Negronis might have been might have been, you know, eight Negronis (laughs) for someone in the beginning. But now they've kind of learned, you know, like, oh, okay, I understand what I'm doing now. Um, You know, recommended portion size makes more sense. Uh, you know, because I think I think at first people are like, "Well, any size bag of Doritos is a single serving, <laughs> right? That little tiny one that comes with your lunch, all the way up to that big giant one—that's a single <laughs> serving to the home consumer, right? You got to portion it out for them." Uh, but I think that we've trained people well enough to know that now you can have drinks, especially drinks that are all spirits, like a Negroni, on hand at the ready, kind of forever if you want it. So I don't think it, I don't think that's going to go back. Would you? Would you change anything if you thought it was going to go back? Would you make it like, like a 10, 10 Negroni box instead of 20?
3: Nah, I think I, I like the idea of big and small. It's either one Negroni in a single serve in a in an intricate glass bottle or you got 20 Negronis and you can keep it in your fridge or if you're going away for the week or visiting somebody for a party, boom. You don't have to worry about if they uh, don't have anything up to your standards. You don't want to walk into the party and handed a white cloth or you do perhaps but if you don't now you can make sure you have your negroni on tap and you don't have anything to uh to worry about all they need is ice and you're good to go i wouldn't change it uh it's it's become volumetrically our most important product, believe it or not since launching it just because obviously it's huge in 1.75 liter format which is the biggest Actually, 1.8 liters was a recent change, but the largest format the, that the federal government here in the United States will let something registered as a spirit go into. Because otherwise, I'd think, why not? Maybe even go a little bit bigger. Sure, uh, get a
2: get a you know get get the home kit where you can tra- transfer your uh, uh, your water cooler. <laughs> <Just>
3: to, <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's and a party.
2: carabiners full of uh, full of Negroni. Just tap then, it up. Let's go. hit the beach, man.
3: Yeah, put want. it in a
1: camelback and and get
3: after it. Why not? <laughs>
1: <laughs> now is the is the I, is it pre diluted or do you have to stir it with your own ice at home? Is there is there that one little extra step that the consumer has to do?
3: We made hundreds of Negronis when we finalized the formula for this, and, and yeah, it's it's pre diluted. You um you'll want to drink it over ice. Unfortunately, it will separate if you froze it. So if you put it in the freezer, the lower alcohol components will actually freeze, leaving you with almost a slushy-like Negroni, which sounds great, except that the higher alcohol liquid components taste high in alcohol. Uh, mm-hmm. So it ends up being a, a much more um, extreme high high ester example, or I, I guess I should say high, uh, high octane example of a Negroni. But the... Um, the like
2: you're, it's like your apple. like you're jacking it, you know, apple jacking it.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but freezing the, off,
2: freezing off some of the non-alcohol to, to have a greater alcohol.
3: Yep, yeah, uh, and that's a that's a version of of increasing alcohol to, to separate it by freezing as opposed to separating it by heating. Because obviously, there's a different freezing point and a different boiling point, which is why we uh, even have alcohol to begin with here, at yep. least on the distilled level. But um, but yeah, the uh, the The Negroni was, it was a, a really challenging thing to get the proportions perfect on a small scale and then to say, okay, but what about when we make a thousand liter version of this? Is it going to scale exactly the same way? And that had its fun moments, but also figuring out the right amount of water, doing some displacement, doing the, everything's done by weight here, everything. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the only way to do things on as big of a scale and keep it as consistent as we need to. Uh, so we we weigh everything, um, which yeah. which generally happens in a distillery. It also happens behind a lot of bars.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let yeah, me, uh, let me go ahead, Celer. Uh, you got it. Go. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the. Um, how you're finding the RTD market, because we've had, uh, you know, it, it, is, it has exploded. I think it was going to explode before the pandemic and that- It
2: was on its way, right? White Claw and Truly and all those guys were already out there and they were going 300% growth year over year for the two years prior to the pandemic. I haven't seen any numbers about last year, but I, I assume it just exploded.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, we've had a lot of guests on who have launched some really inventive, really cool, really out there, wild, ready to drink drinks. And the thing, the common theme, that I've heard from all of them is people come up to them and say, oh, man, like, this is the pandemic, like, this must be such a great time to, like, be making cocktails in cans. And the response is, kind of, because people want to drink at home. Well, they didn't want to, but they had to drink at home for an entire year. But, you know, in in uh, hard times, it's been my experience, people reach for... Familiar creature comforts, and they might not necessarily be wanting to try something with, you know, elderflower and sarsaparilla when there's a canned margarita right next to that in the store and they're like margarita, I know what that is. So I guess my question is sort of how has that treated you and how's that been for you as a Negroni maker? Uh, My real question, I guess, being uh, do people outside of the bubble that I apparently live in uh, know Negroni's enough that it's had this sort of crossover into the mainstream success or do you still kind of have to educate people that like it's a nuanced drink, it's a bitter drink, it's a botanical drink, but it's probably the best drink that we've ever invented as a species. So you're not going to regret trying it.
3: Well, I'll start by agreeing with that sentiment. I think it is the the greatest cocktail that we've ever created, and I've made plenty of cocktails that aren't Negronis in my life. So I'm, I'm. It's not as though I'm that biased. I also make an, a ready to drink apertivo spritz cocktail. So I have, I have two babies in the RTD world. To answer the question, though, or one of the few questions that you threw my way, Greg. Uh, yeah, I think. I think that there, in the beginning, the very, very beginning of the pandemic, I think that there was an inclination to, if you are a Negroni drinker, you perhaps reached for Campari, uh, but after you, you killed your first bottle, and who knows how fast it happened, you might have wanted to try a Negroni that was prepackaged and not made by by Campari, and we started to see, we actually saw a dip in sales in March and. beginning of April, and then a return, and then big increases thereafter going into May uh, for not just the ready to drink cocktails that we produce, but also our spirits, as I think folks did start to get a little bit more experimentative at home Mm -hmm. in making Mm. perhaps their favorite cocktail. Now, all of that said, the other advantage that we've had is that we didn't launch ready-to-drink cocktails the week before the pandemic or in the middle of the pandemic. We started making bottled Negronis and it was difficult in in 2018 because there weren't a lot of ready-to-drink cocktails in the market that were made by smaller producers such as St. So When we began, it came with its challenges as folks didn't necessarily expect quality in a ready-to-drink cocktail. They anticipated over oversweetening, um, and out of balance, which was surprising to us. But I guess in hindsight, I understand why, mm-hmm. uh, it was, it was, it just wasn't really something that folks had experienced in the past, but a lot of people said, Oh, I bet your Negroni, Oh, your Negroni is probably too sweet for me. I said, well, why do you think that? Like, let's give it a try. Uh, <laughs> we worked really hard to make a balanced Negroni and anyone who's ever batched a cocktail knows that you can actually be way more precise in your batching and your, yep. and your, proportions when you're working with larger sizes a jigger cosine, cosine. Yeah, yeah. yeah right suther mm-hmm. i mean it's 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 almost an unfair advantage if you find perfect balance i can repeat it every single time because it's it's on such a large scale and and we have really precise scales literal scales that tell us when we're at the exact right proportion of each in, ingredient and and that all works but we had a lot of growing pains in the beginning by making folks have to overcome this preconceived notion of ready to drink cocktails. All of that work sort of paid off by the time the pandemic hit because, yeah, it wasn't like they had never heard of St. Agrestis Negroni's. If they're a Negroni drinker or they started to drink Negroni's previous to the pandemic and they lived in places where we had relatively strong distribution, there's a good chance that they at least noticed or have had one of our Negroni's in the past. And For that reason, I believe a lot of folks did gravitate towards our Negroni's and our Spritz, which was on the market for a whole year before the the pandemic began as well, um, as a as a, an option that was tried and true, already tested and something that they knew that they would enjoy. Uh, maybe not quite to the degree that if they were sitting at a bar like Amoria Margo, but, but pretty damn close to that experience of having a craft-made cocktail produced by somebody other than them, or, or I guess, mm-hmm. you know, mixed up by someone who wasn't mixing it into a pint glass.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's what, what people were really, um, you know, missing uh, was, was having something made for them. Uh, And I think that, you know, given that you were already somewhat established that probably at least gave you a leg up here. I don't know. I don't know. Does that work anywhere else further away from home where you're kind of, you know, hometown advantage?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's some markets that we have had uh, some success in, for years at this point. We mm-hmm. we quickly got into California and California remained a strong market for us through the pandemic. Uh, the Massachusetts, greater Boston area as well. Um, New Jersey, a lot of folks left New York and we always talk about you know the folks who left New York, whether it be temporary or not, they all went to the Hamptons. But so many folks ended up going to the Hudson Valley and to New Jersey, and, and those markets, I guess, which are still "quote unquote" our backyard, uh, mm. ended up becoming pretty pretty good markets for us as well. And then the biggest surprise is that the second best city in the United States for Saint Agrestis, and perhaps it won't surprise either of you gentlemen, but it's it's Minnesota uh, or Minneapolis is the city. I mean the the market there is so good for us. We, we do more business in Minneapolis than we do in Los Angeles or San Francisco. and It's partially because we have an absolutely incredible distributor, but also because there's such an incredible appetite for, for food and drink, and there is sort of an already developed palate for herbal and bitter um, in part for a long, long time, thanks to the Scandinavian culture that has always yep. been there
1: yeah, absolutely. that that surprises me not at all. I have a lot of uh, a lot of familiarity and a lot of love for the Twin Cities. They punch way above their weight in terms of what a high class, high grade and and how educated the consumers are in in food and beverage there. A um, lot of amazing aquavit. Uh, a lot of amazing, like you said, uh, interesting herbal Scandinavian liqueurs. I mean, Jesus, malort! I know that Chicago, but like that's that's in that same vein of what you're talking about there. Totally. And, uh, yeah. I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is Minneapolis is cooler than you think, and you should probably go there today. Yeah, I kind of agree. Uh, there's some other cool things going on in
2: Minneapolis that that, that I don't think people have heard enough about yet. Uh, in in the in the sort of bitter world. Um, Listen, I want to touch on before we end up wrapping up this episode uh, that you and your brother have another company that has nothing to do with booze, but it's in it's in the it's in the consumable realm and you guys make and sell vegan deli meats. <laughs> Yeah, I'm super intrigued by. You know, my partner is vegan. Uh, You know, we offer food now at Amore Margo. Since the pandemic, uh, we were required to offer food. So all the food we offer is vegan. I'm the chef of the situation. So I'm in there making all this vegan food. And I am, I have to say, in in fairness, I'm a pretty skeptical of all of the the fake, um, I I don't know what you call them, but, you know, fake imitation meats. I try and just sort of like cook vegetables. Like, I don't know that that's, in my world, but I will also say I've given them very little chance. So I'd love to talk a little bit, uh, at least, about your vegan
3: deli meats <laughs> and where, where, what, why, why did this happen? The why is a, is a simple answer that you guys will obviously understand immediately. Seventy percent of our customers, by 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 number of customers, not by revenue, but seventy percent of our customers were bars, restaurants, and and and. That went away overnight in March of 2020. We looked at each other and thought. My brother's been involved with Saint Agrestis. Uh, he was actually the guy who planted the flag in California for the brand. For we, when when I convinced him to come on board, we immediately shipped him out that way. But when the pandemic pandemic began, he came back here, and we we were scared shitless. We thought that the brand would uh would perhaps not survive the the, the turbulent times that we were about to dive into. So. The trend felt right with a lot of people pivoting towards plant-based alternatives. I didn't see anyone doing cold cuts really well in the in the alternative meat category or the plant-based meat category. Um, now, for years, and this was sort of inspired by a trip to, to Mexico years ago, I started to eat seitan, which is vital wheat gluten, usually... Chickpea flour and water cooked um, in some sort of a broth, and I started to experience vegan tacos made from seitan. Uh, let's call it five years ago in Mexico City, and I thought, "Wow, when I come back to the U.S., I'm going to start cooking a lot of seitan because it seems to have this really incredible texture to it. It has a lot of it's it's gluten because it's wheat, so not everyone can consume it. But I don't have an intolerance to gluten, um, so I started cooking it and. One day I just decided I was going to start kind of making some cold cuts because I'm Italian American. I grew up in New Jersey. I missed an Italian sub and there was nothing on the market that I could get (laughs) to kind of, you know, get that craving fixed. So I, I created ham and pepperoni after a bunch of different iterations of it using spices and a lot of which I have great, incredible access to because of what I do for a living, buying herbs and spices and turning them into amaro, and uh, I jokingly was calling it Louis Luncheonette as like a hey, a friend would come over, we'd meet in the park, and I'd bring a, a bag or a basket of Italian subs made with Louis' fake cold cuts, fake meat, cold cuts or plant based cold cuts. I'd say, hey, here's a Louis Luncheonette sandwich, almost as a joke, and uh, I kind of brought the idea to to my brother Matt and my business partner Steven and we um we were like, Yeah, well, we're not gonna have much to do right now. We can't go see accounts. All we can do is make spirits and cocktails here and, you know, our that's that's only a portion of the job. A big portion of my time was spent running around with a bag full of booze, and that obviously was immediately not a possibility. So that's the why and and the kind of how it came about. Um, and we started making. Uh, we the the idea happened in by March. We were already you know okay. Let's let's move forward with it. The business didn't fully get off the ground until fall of last year, which makes sense considering it's a totally new world for us of the food items, and we don't produce the food here in the same facility. We we have um a share of a commercial kitchen, uh that that we that's where we cook. And I mean that
2: still seems like a pretty fast takeoff, March to the fall. Like-
3: we we move pretty quickly around here in all things. Like the day we decided we were gonna bag and box launch a bag and box Negroni, like three weeks later we were launching a bag and box Negroni. Like nice. we it's the beauty of not having uh a higher power to answer to and being sure. an independent distillery. Um and just a bunch of people who are like, you know, willing to put in the work for 12, 14 hours a day, we were very, lucky enough that we were able to work through. Uh,
2: I think it's a very leap in the net will appear situation.
3: Yes, yes, uh, and then and then the business was you know tricky and, and, and in launching a plant-based deli meat in an industry that we had no idea about, but the fun part is, uh, and this is kind of like a recent addition, we, we launched a, a plant-based rib, we're calling it pig saving rib. Uh, yeah. I so saw, I, saw, I
2: checked out the website. I saw all this stuff.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Heather. I appreciate you checking it out. The, uh, the pig's even rib kind of changed the business for us though. Cause I did think that there was an appetite for something grillable that wasn't a, a burger or a sausage or a hot dog. And, um, we, I worked really hard with my brother to create a, uh, a rib experience that was made entirely from plants that, that really would, you know, kind of, be approved even by the meat eater, and we tested it on meat eaters. That's how we decided we're gonna, we were going to go about it, <laughs> as opposed to testing it on vegans or on vegetarians. We wanted the meat eater to approve, and once we got that, that stamp of approval, we, we launched that to the market too.
2: Well, I think by and large, and this is just certainly one man's opinion, I think by and large, you're not really selling these things to the vegan. I think the vegan doesn't want fake meat, they didn't want meat in the first place. I think you're selling these things to the meat eater who wants to reduce his intake of meat maybe. Um, and I, I, you know, I find no fault with that whatsoever. So I think that's, a, that, that's the more clever plan. Don't test it on the vegans. I don't think they want it in the first place. Test it on the, the ones who, who are maybe trying to become
1: a vegan maybe. Uh, and you know, This is a wounding- or, or, not, or not necessarily trying to become a vegan, but just, I mean, this is, this is actually why I turned around because I used to be a big hater on the Impossible Burger because I was like, I don't know who this is for. It's not for vegans. It's not for me because if I wanna you know, eat a veggie burger, I'd rather have like a super dope falafel burger or like a really awesome black bean burger than like vegetables pretending to be meats. Right. But then when I saw it starting to show up in Burger King and Dunkin' Donuts, I realized that like, oh, there is a What are you a doing in Burger Scamble. King and Dunkin' Donuts? That's what I wanna I, know. I don't <laughs> go in, it's on the outside of it. Although to be fair, Burger King is the uh, silverback gorilla of uh road trip fast food, and anybody who says otherwise is, is uh, doesn't know what they're talking about. Heretics. That's neither here nor there. The point is, it's, it's a good way for people to think about who might not ordinarily question their meat intake to suddenly introduce a variable in there and say, huh, you know what? Do I want to not eat a cow-based burger today? And Then all of a sudden, you've got them thinking about their meat intake. You've got them thinking about the effects of that on the planet. You've got them uh, you know, questioning this default assumption that a hamburger comes from a cow. I don't know, maybe I am putting a little bit too much faith in the average American consumer, but I think that the important thing about you know, meat substitutes, like you know the, 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 something like a pig-saving rib, it's just the fact that that exists, get someone who might not have even conceived of that idea to think about the way that they eat meat. And I think that's really important.
2: Sure. I want to ask another question regarding this though. Uh, Louis, um, wh- Do you have a culinary background? Where did, how did you just, you know what, I'm just going to fucking go in the kitchen and make a thing that's never been made before.
3: I don't technically, I never worked in a kitchen. I mean, I made pizzas growing up and stuff like that, working in pizzerias, uh, but I, I never worked professionally in a kitchen. I grew up in a household that cooked every single meal though. Um, you know, dad being from Italy, there was sort of an expectation that the food was going to be fresh cooked and on the table every night by 5.30 and you know, as as traditional and, and uh, you know, not the cases that should be or might be uh, moving forward, it was an incredible way to grow up because I grew up kind of in a kitchen every night, come home from school My mom, who's also of Italian descent, my nonina, would be cooking food, and I got to spend a lot of time just kind of cooking, growing up cooking and learning that way. I think that my when I started to really think about food was actually when I started to really think about the experience of enjoying things like wine and cocktails and spirits and not just drink them to drink them, but drink them to truly experience them is when I started to really pay more attention to flavors and food. And I believe that my experience in making balanced spirits and cocktails played a huge part in growing a culinary, uh, interest, but also honing some skills in, in the kitchen. And to me, cooking is therapy. that I feel like you feel the same way about that. And maybe perhaps more at home than when you're cooking at a Moria Margo, but cooking's, cooking's therapy. Um, it's and, all about the process. Yeah, I- exactly. And, and. The creation of what you know, I I, I developed for for the Louis plant based meat um, that that ended up being entirely a, a therapeutic part of of my existence. It was after a stressful week of trying to make sure that Saint Agrestis samaro was in enough bars that we could pay the bills and all that in the in the early days. Um, but that that was the um, that was kind of the the impetus of it. So it was there were really good creative vibes that went into the creation of the the product because it was it was my therapy and it was invented in a kitchen at my house not you know in my apartment in brooklyn it it was that's how it was created well Uh, i'll tell you this
2: as a guy who who admitted earlier that i haven't really tried these things before i've never had an impossible burger or sausage or any of that nonsense um I'm more intrigued, and similarly, I think, to the people who you said you encountered when you were doing tastings in, in uh, um, liquor stores. I'm more intrigued to give this product a try because I know you made it yourself.
3: Well, I think so. that's a key distinction, and, and there's a lot of, quote-unquote, lab-developed or lab-created things, and, and this mm-hmm. just isn't – it isn't it. We make all of our, all of our product fresh weekly. Everything's happening Right now, my brother's in a kitchen cooking. Um, it's it's if you ordered today, you would get your order fresh from what he's cooking today. Uh, so there's definitely we, we we try to communicate that, but there's an element of oh it's it's probably from some big venture capitalist lab, <laughs> you know it's not that. So I think that there's a there's a chance that that ends up making it a lot more approachable to folks too. Yeah.
2: I think that's true, uh, ma'am. Thanks for sharing that information. I know it's kind of off topic for us, uh, but you know I like to take it off topic from time to time. Um, what's uh, what's coming up next for you? You got any new products you're going to roll off uh, from St. Agrestus? I, I, I'm reading here in my notes here. Something about a podcast. you am going to try and crack into this world?
3: Yeah, I'm. I think that part of owning and talking about a brand is usually through the lens of of whoever's. Asking the questions, which in this format has been super enjoyable, but in a lot of other formats, it's been a little bit less enjoyable. And when a story gets published, in so many cases, it's like, well, that's not even true, or there's some there's some inaccuracies. And we've had a fair bit of press. I kind of want to tell the Saint Agresta story from my perspective, and I also think that there's an element of everything looks super, uh, it looks it looks perfect, but the um, the the reality of it is that. A lot went into it and it's not always as easy as it appears on instagram but yeah that's why the podcast will be coming and it'll be coming uh in the next few weeks
2: awesome cool man that's great we'll make sure we get that out there speaking of getting it out there how can our listeners uh, follow along with what all you're doing got an instagram handle or uh other social media you want to talk about
3: yeah instagram is best on the social media front just at st underscore agrestis but also just going to stagrestist.com and subscribing to the newsletter is also an incredible way to keep in touch if we're launching anything new or the link to the podcast when it comes out all of all of that is uh, those are the, definitely the top two ways to keep in touch with what we have going on here in Greenpoint.
2: Awesome. You got you got one for the Louise Luncheonette?
3: Yeah, we do. That that would be that would be louisplantbased.com. And uh, I think it's worth noting that I fought the naming of it after me i wanted it to to not be called louis because i feel like it seems so narcissistic but it uh
2: you had already established it with your your louis uh, uh, basket's full of sandwiches
3: (laughs) and and i I lost i lost that vote against my my brother and my business partner so here it is louis and here i am plugging a brand when a website that bears my name as well which feels disingenuous but it is what it is
2: i think it's the epitome of genuine uh, of genuine though um it yeah, is it's you. It's you are made
3: it. You yeah. can't run from the
2: brand. That's yeah. true. You're
3: it is me. In. It is me. I must be proud. Yeah, you should
2: be. Uh, well, man, thank you so much for giving some of your time to us today. I um, uh, look forward to maybe a, a day when we can stand across the bar and see each other in person again and have, excuse me, have a drink of delicious St. Grestis or maybe a Negroni from a box. I haven't tried the box one yet. Um, I have tried those spritzes. So they're quite good. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, man. And I'm really, I'm, I think I'm going to place an order for Louise. Uh, I just want to try it out. I want to try out the ribs.
3: I'll drop it by. You don't have to place the order, Souther. Just, just, uh, email me your, uh, your new address. I'll get it to you.
2: Oh, rad. Uh, we'll do after the show. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of the speakeasy. Tune into Heritage Radio Network for many more shows, just like this one. Um, uh, go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org up in the right hand, uh, corner of your screen you'll see a beating heart click on that so you can donate to keep shows like this one and many others on on the air so thanks so much for joining us everybody cheers cheers
0: so you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll lord knows that country music's gonna save your soul the devil wants his in that rhythm and blues that it's gonna get you the,
2: the speakeasy is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to the heritage radio network Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network.
0: Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you.